This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, this is Joe's sister, Nikki. I think I might be the only girl in the world who has a brother who spends his entire day in the basement pretending he has an internet radio show. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Duggan. Have you ever wondered what life would be like if you'd pursued something in the arts? You know, uh, music or painting, poetry? Well, if those words are poetry to your ears, hang on. Because today, we'll talk about the man who started the Juilliard String Quartet and more. Robert Mann with his son, Nicholas Mann. Plus, we'll share headlines, throw out the Haven Lifeline to a lucky listener, and still save time for my amazing trivia. And now, two guys who are the string duet on this podcast, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. So are you the bass line or are you the lead guitar? Tell me. I think you're the bass line. Have you not paid attention to any of this podcast in the last eight years? Do you listen to the show? Hey, everybody. Welcome to Wednesday on the Stacky Benjamin Show. Just so you know which voice is which, I'm Joe Salciha. I have a show money on Twitter. And across the card table from me at this weird recording time is my good friend, OG. We normally don't record right now. At 6 a.m. on Wednesdays? You're right. <laughs> That's right. At four seconds before whatever time you're listening to this, yeah, we don't do it. But how are you, man? Another beautiful day in the neighborhood. It is. I feel so good because I'm actually in the office all week this week, and I have not been in the basement for an entire week, I think all summer long. So I'm geeked out about the fact that I have two weeks in a row of no travel. Of actually working. Of actually getting work done. Yes. And if this were not a little basement-based business, I'd be thinking about how I could be growing it more quickly with that extra time OG. Mm-hmm. So thanks to ClearBank for supporting Stacky ah, Benjamins. Yes. ClearBank is changing the way entrepreneurs raise money with equity-free capital. If you're doing more than $10,000 a month in revenue, find out how you can receive ClearBank capital by getting your 20-minute term sheet at ClearBank with a C. It's bank with a C. ClearBank dot com forward slash s b c l e a r b a n c dot com slash s b great show today were you ever a member of a band you ever play any instrument yeah i play lots of instruments actually i know you're waiting for the punchline you're looking at me like and then where's the joke (laughs) no i know how to play trumpet i know how to play piano oh that is cool cheryl plays the piano at our house i played the trombone until middle school yeah 
Yeah. I bet that's the only thing you can do. I've gotten pretty good at that. I probably can't even do that anymore. But this gentleman, Robert Mann, if you don't know much about classical music, started the Juilliard String Quartet. Hmm. He also Never heard of him. Has, yeah, Juilliard what? Also, just, just an amazing, amazing life. And I'm so happy that we get to dig into somebody who spent their entire life, OG, doing what they want to do. And by the way, don't you think a lot of this concept of people trying to retire aggressively early is less about retiring early and more like having a life like this guy we're going to talk about today, like doing what you love. Do what you love. At one point in his life, and we'll talk to his son, Nicholas, about this, I hope, uh, he was in four bands at the same time when he first uh, went from Portland, Oregon to New York City because he just loved it. And obviously, he made a little money from all those things, made enough to live, but more importantly, got to have a whole lifetime doing what he loved. Doing what we love here making a great podcast for you guys. We've got Nicholas Mann coming down to the basement, but first we got some great headlines, so let's get this thing started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline comes to us from TechCrunch. I'm sorry, dude, this made me laugh. This headline, you're going to love this headline. This is written by Devin Coldaway. Robinhood stored passwords in plain text, so change yours now. Gotta love it. Isn't it amazing that when you find a service that cuts all the corners and everybody goes, this is incredible. It turns out they cut all the corners. They cut all them all. Yeah. They cut every single one of them. Investment and stock trading app Robinhood stored some user credentials, including passwords and plain text on internal systems. The company revealed today, this particularly dangerous security misstep could have seriously exposed its users, though it says it is no evidence the data was accessed improperly. You know why they have no evidence? Because they don't have a system. Because the be, Russians wouldn't give it away that fast. Be able to tell. Uh, we didn't buy the system where you could tell if anybody has the stuff. So there's no evidence that we stole the... Oh, boy. Sensitive data like passwords and personal information are generally kept encrypted at all times. Don't know if you knew that. Generally. Huh. Yeah. Smart it, plan. Except when you put it on your uh, desktop with a little thing that says, all my passwords client are here. Client passwords. <laughs> client passwords, right. <laughs> well, that's the easiest way to store the client passwords, right? Well, it's in a file that you can easily recognize on the server. Yeah. It's harder to remember banana bread recipe or something like whatever your thing is to keep track of your passwords on your computer. At least you didn't put hacker start here. <laughs> like, the, like on every blogger's homepage, start here. Click. Russians, do this one. That way, going back to sensitive data like passwords and personal information are generally kept encrypted. That way, if the worst came to pass and a company's databases were exposed, all the attacker would get is a bunch of gibberish. Unfortunately, it seems there might have been a few exceptions to that rule. Skip the gibberish part. A number of users, including CNET's Justin Kokon, Koshan, I don't know how to pronounce Justin's name, Seenist Justin Koshan received the following notice from Robinhood in an email. When you set a password for your Robinhood account, we use an industry standard process. Industry standard, where we just put it out there for everybody. Uh, that prevents anyone or a company from reading it. On Monday night, we discovered some user credentials were stored in a readable format within our internal system. So we wanted to let you know your password may have been included. We resolved this issue and after thorough review, found no evidence this information was accessed by anyone except Earl. 
anyone outside of our response team. Except Vladimir. Yeah, and then it's funny, then the author of this piece says, it seems that if it were truly industry standard, then the rest of the industry would also have stored passwords and plain text. Come to think of it, that would explain a lot, since Google, Facebook, Twitter, and others have all managed to make the same mistake recently. Oh, boy. Uh, Robinhood representatives stressed the rapidity of the company's response to the issue. Okay. At least we let you know right away. This is the important lesson here is, remember, everything on the internet is public domain. Passwords, encrypted, not encrypted, double authentication, it's everybody's business. And especially when it comes to your investment accounts, I think keeping those passwords in a password manager, changing the password, and even equally as important, if something happens to you, OG, making sure that family, somebody, whoever your power of attorney is, knows how to get into that manager so that, uh, yeah. So that yeah, you can... The big can, one, the, the master. Yeah, so that everything's taken care I of. I love zucchini bread. Exclamation point is, is, is the spot. Uh, you must be hungry right now as we do this. No, I'm not. And I despise zucchini. So let's go to That's this. That's the joke. Second piece. Do you despise making $1.82 million and you didn't expect any money? <sighs> you know, pocket change to most people, I understand, but. Might be a nice start for you. The world's luckiest intern just made $1.82 million in a single day. Did you read this? As I'm the one that sent it to you. Yes, I did read did, it. Did you send this to me? I thought Richie sent this to me. Hmm. That's a cool story. It's a story of a NASA intern. This is uh, Bill Murphy Jr. wrote this piece. Story of a NASA intern who picked up something very valuable without realizing it and then carried it with him for decades as he moved around the country. Maybe you can relate. This is where hoarders are going to absolutely keep on hoarding after reading this. See, this, I told you. Yeah. Uh, someday, man. Uh, heck, I'm writing this from my home office in full view of a stack of unopened boxes from a move two years ago, he writes. But for Gary George, who interned at NASA when he was studying engineering at Lamar University in Texas long ago, that kind of pack ratedness ultimately paid off big time to the tune of almost $2 million in a single day. Here's his story. George had a side hustle while he worked at NASA. He'd buy things from government auctions and resell them. One day in 1973, he bought a truck full of used raw videotape from government agencies. He realized he could sell it at a big markup to local television stations, which recorded over old tape to save video of their programs. George paid about $218 for more than uh, 1,150 videotapes. That would be about $981 today that he paid. Mm. So with inflation, he then sold eight of them for 400 and was going to donate the rest to a church for the tax write-off. I had no idea there was anything of value on them, George said in an interview with Reuters. But his father noticed three of the remaining videotape boxes had similar notations on them. Apollo 11 EVA. Of course, that, refer delete. <laughs> of course that referred to the moon landing and the NASA abbreviation for extravehicular activity dated July 20th, 1969. His father was really into the space program, George recalled. He said, I think I'd hang on to those. They might be valuable someday. With no way to watch the videos, George didn't have the proper equipment. He simply held on to them for decades, taking them every place he moved during his career as a mechanical engineer. He's now retired and living in Las Vegas. Then two things happened. First, in 2006, NASA admitted it couldn't find its original recordings of the 1969 moon landing. It couldn't find It sold them at an no. auction. In 1973, it sold them in an auction. Yeah, we'll do this every week. So what does it matter if we get this one? Yeah, just take these out with the trash. Second, in 2008, George said he happened to be on a vacation with a friend who was a NASA employee. This is the really cool part. 
and who was part of the team trying to find the old moon landing videos. Quite frankly, I was sitting at the table drinking a beer and I said, well, damn, I have those. George told Reuters. <laughs> Could you imagine? Yeah, man. Ugh. How's work? Oh, it sucks, man. They got us looking through all this crap for these Apollo landing videos. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. You finding them? No. This, dude, they're like nowhere to be found. Oh, yeah. It's because I got them in my garage somewhere. <laughs> Funny, man. Like, no, seriously, I bought them like in 1975. I got them. Eventually, he opened negotiations with NASA over the videos he bought fair and square back when he was an intern. Could you imagine trying to prove that, though? Yeah. Well, like, especially. Going, oh, man. Like, how do I how do I prove that I actually bought these fair and square since they're looking for them now? Yeah, especially with the government. They're like, no, uh, you were an intern. You stole these. Apparently he did, though, because uh, he finally got to watch them. After flying to a studio in California that had the right vintage equipment, sure enough, he learned he'd unwittingly held on to the oldest and best quality recordings of the moon landing that were out. Uh, the videos have only been watched three times since they were originally recorded in 1969. First, when George watched them in California. Next, when he had contents of the videos copied and digitized. The third time, when officials at the Sotheby's auction house viewed them recently to verify what was on them. That's right. Sotheby's, which offered them for sale as, quote, the best surviving NASA video recordings from Apollo 11. They sold a couple weeks ago for the cool price of $1.82 million plus Sotheby's commission. Dollar, dollar bills. It says it's not known who the winning bidder was. The winning intern, however, is pretty clear. The moral of the story. Capital gains on that, you think? <laughs> Big time capital gains, wouldn't you? <laughs> Who cares? Your cost, your cost basis is, uh, yeah, my cost basis is $110. Yeah, 400 bucks, right? They said he's, he's he paying. bucks? Yeah. I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> of course not. $400. The moral of the story is clear too. Bill finishes this with time to clean out those boxes in the attic. Mm-hmm. Heard that. Good idea. Great idea. But this idea, though, of hanging on to stuff on purpose because you think it's going to be valuable later, OG, that rarely pays. It rarely does. Well, I mean, you got to think about it, too. A, a chest of drawers, grandma's engagement ring, a grandfather clock. Yeah, that's stuff that's like important to the family, but it's unlikely to fetch millions of dollars at auction. You know what I mean? Like how many times do you remember that show those on PBS that you could watch the... Uh, you know, the like the auction guys or whatever it was called. Yeah, like, Antique Roadshow. Yeah, Antique Roadshow. You'd be like, hey, I have this glass. And they're like, oh, that's a mid-20th century, you know, knockoff from Walmart. It's worth 11 cents. <laughs> like, oh, dang. <laughs> and then, like, the next guy would be like, this probably wasn't you know, worth anything. They're like, oh, this is a one-of-a-kind Picasso. You know what I mean? It's just, like, yeah. random stuff. Elizabethan so. serving tray <laughs> exactly. that the queen licked. <laughs> Do you know the history of this? <laughs> Like, uh, no, my grandma gave it to me. I was going to throw it in the trash. Well, thank God you didn't. This is the original cotton gin from, you know, <laughs> 1865. You're like, holy crap, you know, or whatever. So it's kind of hit and miss. Origi- I say throw your crap out. The original cotton gin. I didn't know where to put my arms in this thing. <laughs> I, I thought it was a workout this, machine from the... Is this a sock? Like, what do I do with this thing? <laughs> and, and seriously, when you look at this... Uh, risk versus reward chart of different types of investments, collectibles, OG, right there at the top where they could be worth a bajillion dollars, but risk wise too, the risk, when you look at the chart, doesn't make it worth it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Makes it. I mean, you're holding on to it forever. So yeah. Marie Kondo, your stuff. So our lesson today, I think uh, number one is she got the NASA tapes. Probably time to cha-ching those. Talk to an auctioneer. Yeah. To cha-ching those bad boys. But the bigger one is if you're getting free trades from your trading provider, there may or may not be some um, baggage that comes with that. Billy Bob running the tech program in the background? Quite possibly. Or not even Billy Bob, like a Billy Goat. <laughs> Robert Mann passed away early last year. Uh, he was born in 1920 in Portland, Oregon. If you don't know who Robert Mann was, he was a violinist, a composer, a conductor. Most notably, though, he was the founding member of the Juilliard String Quartet. He's a faculty member of the Manhattan School of Music. He's considered one of the seminal influences in the world of chamber music of our time. He was the first violinist of the Juilliard String Quartet for more than 50 years until his retirement back in 1997. He was the winner of the coveted Nomberg competition in 1941 and now is its president emeritus and serves on its board of directors. In concert with the Juilliard String Quartet, he's the winner of four Grammy Awards and a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Not only that, OG, music was not only Mr. Man's life, it also runs in his family. We're going to talk to his son, Nicholas Mann, who's the chair of the string department at the Manhattan School of Music. He was a founding member of the Mendelssohn String Quartet, which uh, began in 1979 and spanned 31 years. Uh, he, of course, has traveled all over. He's had a distinguished teaching career, including teaching at the University of Delaware, Harvard University, the North Carolina School of the Arts, and the Hart School of Music. And he's also on the faculty of Juilliard. Let's say hello to talk about his father, Robert Mann, coming down to the basement, Nicholas Mann. And coming down the stairs to the basement, it's our new friend, Nicholas Mann. How are you? I'm excellent. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so happy to be talking about your father's life and about this wonderful memoir of his. Tell me first about your relationship with your father, Nicholas. What was that like, having a gentleman that was, you know, so widely known and uh, famous and a guy that clearly just was on the top of his game for such a long time. Well, as most people will always respond to a question like that, of course, he was my father and it's the only father I ever knew. So I didn't know otherwise. People always ask me because I'm a, I'm a violinist as well in the same field. They always thought, oh, my God, there must have been incredible pressure or difficulty having such a famous father. But I saw it as only a benefit and a great resource. We had a great relationship and my life was filled with the richness of his amazing uh, relationships and, and just lifestyle. That was actually going to be my, my next question was <laughs> what was about you and growing up? Because knowing that you're a violinist and obviously having these big footsteps in front of you, you seem to imply there, though, there wasn't a lot of pressure on you. 
No, I think he was very careful not to push me. As a teacher, he has seen a lot of stage parents, you know, like you watch a tennis game and you always see a father or mother in the corner. It can be very difficult. So he wanted not to be that. He he didn't push me, just encouraged, and he let me blossom, and, and it was a great relationship. We have a lot of things about your father, of course, that we could focus on, but I want to go right to the beginning and talk about your grandparents. Your grandfather was a tailor and didn't have any musical experience. How did your dad get involved with music if his parents didn't have any musical background? You're right. His father did not. His mother loved classical music, and she sang in a chorus. Not a, It was an amateur but they had the feeling, as a lot of parents do, that every child should take up an instrument. And every he had a brother and a sister, and each of them also studied instruments. His sister went on to be a very uh, wonderful pianist. His brother, who was a remarkable, famous uh, entrepreneur, never excelled at music. So each kid started an instrument, and my father had talent, and it went from there. I love how your dad, when he gets his first violin goes to his uh, his uh, hideout with his buddies and immediately uh, forms his own quartet. Can you tell us that story? Uh, yes, it's very funny. He, he uh, So he got the violin and he had a, a, a group. They had a little hideout. They went, he took the four strings off of the instrument and they built with just pieces of wood Three other instruments, they took hickory sticks and they made bows, and he called it his first quartet, much to the chagrin of his parents who gave him a big spanking when he got home. <laughs> well, and I love, I love, Nicholas, your dad's takeaway from that, which is with any quartet, it's all great in the beginning, and then it gets really difficult after. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> yeah. He moved, uh, your grandfather moved your family, your dad's family, from Portland to Tillamook, and then back to Portland and opened up a grocery. Now, your dad said, though, and, and, and I would like some clarification here. Your dad said that your grandfather was a very good tailor. Why would he change industries if he was great as a tailor? Was it just what was going on in the economy at the time? They were very poor, and he did whatever it was that was best for making a living at the time. So probably the career just did, you know, he wasn't making enough money. As a tailor, he did make a suit. For the local uh, craftsperson who was a, a woodworker, and in return, he got my father's first violin for uh, for a tailored suit. It's <laughs> a nice story. <laughs> well, well, I did love that story uh, because it didn't sound like the the violin was very high quality. No, but it it did the trick, and in fact, we still have it. <laughs> oh, do you really? Yes, a great great keepsake. That's that's fantastic. I'd like to clarify something else with your grandparents being poor and doing whatever it took to make money. I know a lot of families at that time, Nicholas, the kids were encouraged and not even really encouraged. I mean, my grandfather was a farmer and all the kids worked on the farm. I would have thought that your dad would have been very much pushed toward working in the family business. And music seems like something that more wealthy people would take up. Did your dad ever get any pressure from his dad or mom to take more of a part in the family business? No, I think because basically his father was not happy with what he was doing. And in fact, when my father moved east with my grandmother, because in those days, if you wanted to study it, music, you had to go to one of the major conservatories, which basically only existed in New York and Philadelphia. There was nothing out West you could study. 
my grandfather decided to go to California and he bought with what little money he had a little plot of land to have an orange grove. He thought he could make money there. He, so he was in a sense constantly trying to find a better way for a better living. Uh, it didn't it didn't succeed, but uh, <laughs> he 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 had no stake. I don't think he wanted his kids to follow in his footsteps. But I also think at that time, you know, looking at your dad's music, thinking there's no way in heck you're going to be able to make any money doing this. There's a history in music in Russia. A lot of the the poor and the, and the, it was left. It was the Jewish. People who lived in the ghettos, the way out was through music. So the the Heifetzes and the Oistrox, Grievous, that was their way. If you were successful in music, you could change your status. So maybe my parents were thinking the same, my grandparents. Yeah. With you saying earlier about some helicopter parents and parents pushing their kids, I also found it funny before we move with your dad east to New York and toward Juilliard, that your dad didn't like to practice. I mean, that made me laugh out loud that your dad of all people did not like to practice music at all in the early days. No, he wanted to be a forest ranger. He grew up in Tillamook, as you mentioned, which is in the middle of nowhere. He tells the story that he would always put his music up, tune his violin, and then he'd either read his science fiction novel or or sneak out of the house to go fishing. And when he came back, his mother would say, well, I don't hear anything. And he'd say, oh, I'm just... I'm studying the notes, mom. <laughs> so he was not a practicer. <laughs> but that seems to me to be part of his success as I was reading this is that one thing that is emphasized over and over and that people that follow your dad's career know is that he was very good at the emotion of the music. And it seems like that listening that you get with all that time in nature. Do you think that's where that came from? For sure, he would say that his involvement with nature was huge for his development emotionally and in terms of how it relates to music, the development of intensity. He talks a a scene about watching waves as they build in momentum and how that affects, you know, one's psyche and also in music. And I would also say that in a career like music, which requires so many hours of practicing, you can be too narrow minded. You can just you know, spend your whole life, you know, working on how two fingers move. He was more a person that was really well-rounded. He was a Renaissance man in music. Yeah, he, well, he certainly was. And I yes. wish I had time to go through all the different yeah. facets of exactly what you're talking about. But, but to cover the next one, I want to talk about him coming East because poor family, not a lot of money to, to come East. He applies to Juilliard. He's accepted. When he comes East though, how does he make that work without having really any money? Um, he was very lucky. There was a, a woman back in Oregon who was his sponsor who would send him whatever it was, $25 a month, which was what you needed back in those days to you know, subsist. And so he did have some help. And, and he lived, you know, you could live poorly, you, you know, up there, Juilliard, which was up on 122nd Street, was in the middle of nowhere. He probably housing was cheap as anything. So you may do. You may do. And you know what? This isn't a point in the book, but it certainly is a point when you're on a money show, Nicholas, is that if you want to do anything badly enough, the thing I got from that is there is help out there. I mean, this woman really, as much as anybody, helped build this wonderful career. Without question, and he was in, he was indebted to her for the rest of his life. I mean, she was a wonderful, wonderful lady. We all need people like that. It's impossible to, to get ahead without 
help on yeah, some level. Yeah, to your point, I loved reading later on that uh, he wrote to her, and correct me if I'm wrong, he wrote to her and said, hey, I have enough money, I want to pay you back. And she said the way to pay me back is to keep what you're doing and keep teaching young people to do what you do. Exactly. Isn't that a beautiful story? Yeah. I thought that was just such a such a fitting end. I think about music and I think about the practical piece. Do you think that your father ever, as he's coming to Juilliard, is he thinking at all about money or just that he loves this thing that he's doing and he's, uh, I don't know if addicted is the right word, but he certainly is completely emotionally invested at this point. Yeah, I think money was low on the priority list. And as he always told his students, you know, if you're entering a field like like music, the passion has to be there. And then, you know, you're not going to be, it's not a, a career to make a, a mint of money. And but you will make a good living, but you, you must have the passion first. And I think that's that's a good advice for any career because you never know what the monetary realization is going to be. So you might, at least if you're going to enjoy it, and music is, you know, string quartets rate high in terms of self-happiness. Uh, <laughs> I want to ask you some questions about that, about his uh, time at Juilliard, because it was funny to me that at Juilliard, he also didn't like to study, but at the same time, he's involved in music all over the place. I think it says in one point in his memoir, Nicholas, that he, he was in four different groups at the same time. So lots of music, but studying still not something he's in love with. Yeah, well, the first thing that happened, he, so he comes from this little town in Oregon and comes to this big city, New York, and he's just thrilled to all the adventures. He didn't practice at all his first year. He just explored New York. And one of his jury comments at the end of his first year was, never have I seen a talent so deteriorate in one year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not good. I yeah, he, said he, said he caught on and you were right. You know, you make it doesn't matter what school you go to. I have kids now applying to colleges. You make of it what you will. So if he he was one who just ate up the great uh, you know uh, sources of of wealth of interest in terms of music and there's a lot to be offered at a school like Juilliard. I I love uh, uh, his his teacher in the book. His his teacher has this phrase he uses all the time as your father seems to come away on the right side of things over and over and over again, he would always look at him and say, God is kind of fools and drunkards. I don't know which you are. It, yeah. it turned out he was, he, he was neither. Well, you need a little bit of luck. He, he wasn't a drunkard, although he liked his afternoon drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, that was especially true. He entered a competition that he won and he didn't know all of the pieces you had. He like only knew up to a certain point. And in the finals, his teacher, of course, knew this. And they got, he got up to the very note where he, he couldn't go any farther and they stopped him. And that, that was when one of the times the teacher said, <laughs> you know, are you a fool or a drunkard? <laughs> I love that story. He's playing along and he knows there's this drop off point. And right then the woman says, thank you very much. He's like, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it was so good. Your dad around World War II, was fairly certain he was going to get drafted, and he did. Tell me about that time frame. Yeah, well, in those days, you had no choice. Because he was a, a musician, he got himself, first, the, the great story is he, so he has to go into, you know, the six weeks of intensive drilling, you know, uh, boot camp. He smuggles his violin in, which is a no-no, and 
they discover it like on the third day or second day and he gets yelled you come down to the sergeant's quarters and bring your violin and they're there with a couple of the the captains and the various people and the guy says do you play that there thing they said yeah and the guy says do you know the bumblebee and it just so happened my father learned the the flight of the bumblebee and one other famous local you know popular song of the day and he said yeah i know it the guy says well the world's record on guitar is 54 seconds we're going to time you. So the guy, the sergeant, takes out his stopwatch. My father has to start playing. He plays as fast as he can, finishes, and the sergeant says, hey, you're only two seconds slower than the world record. And so they thought that was pretty good, and so they, they gave him like the day off doing menial tasks instead of hard work. What my father didn't tell him is he cheated, and there's about – eight bars that you have to repeat in the, in the piece. He didn't take the repeat. So he consequently, he almost had the world record. <laughs> Another lucky fool or drunkard moment. It's so great. And so very smart. Well, and later on too, knowing friends in high places really helped his career. His gift of music uh, kept him out of the Pacific. I understand. Right. They put him in a jazz band with two other people. And basically he didn't have to go to, to any of the battle into the war front. He was stayed in, in the U.S. on a little island. It was supposedly the lookout for the U-boats, but basically his job was to entertain the, the officers. And as your dad writes in his memoir, while the general runs the uh, was it the general or the colonel runs the uh, runs the military, uh, his wife runs him. And every time he was on a sheet to ship out, she got his name off of that. <laughs> well, I guess I guess they liked his playing. They liked the, the entertainment they got from from the the jazz band. He never though felt like being a soloist. He never felt like that was for him. You know, there's a certain muscular coordinative skill that's. It's discovered when you're probably 10 or 11, even, you know, the very beginning, certain people just have that ability. You can think of it as certain kinds of, you know, basketball or other sports. He never had that virtuoso ability. He was a great violinist, but he was more suited towards the chamber music world, which is all more about the music, the expressiveness. You still have to play the violin damn well, but being a soloist wasn't for him. But I think also a part of your father's success Nicholas, seems to me reading this to be a lot of knowing yourself, a lot of introspection and knowing where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are and really focusing on those unique talents that you have. I, I would agree. I Wasn't that true of all careers? Yeah, good point. Yeah. 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 It really that, yeah. Any career that was going to be, be, become great. Sure. Absolutely. We all have our weaknesses, but knowing how to, how to cater to your strengths, that's, that's really it. Your father lived a long life, 97 years. Any story? I'm sorry. 98. 98 years. I'm sorry. Not cheat him. <laughs> I, I don't I don't want to do that. So many questions I have about how the Juilliard String Quartet began. Uh, some of the stories from from uh throughout his wonderful career. Is there one though that really stands out that tells a great story about your father? Oh wow, that that's that's a hard one. Uh, I mean, there's so many stories. I'm struggling at the moment to think of what what that one story would be. Yeah, because well, and I I had that problem too, and and I know that when we were even preparing to talk to you, 
that's why I wanted to spend so much time on the stories from his early career, because A, that I think will help people that are wondering and beginning that, hey, this idea of practicing, you know, the idea of practicing came later. The love had to kind of come first. And I see too many parents, I think, wreck kids there. And then second, this idea of following your passion and the money followed that I thought were pretty important. But For sure. But then I get to the, you know, the last three quarters of the book and I'm like, there's so much here. I wondered if there's one, if there was one gem in particular that, um, that well, I'll tell story you a like. story that kind of relates to money and not really looking for it. This was, of course, earlier in their, their career through a friend. They knew a, a visual artist who was part of what was called the A Street Gang. It was a bunch of young painters, mostly, who congregated together. They were all poor. And because they didn't have the money, it was decided, well, let's invite the Julia Quartet. Maybe they'll just give us a free concert. And the quartet was thrilled to do it. And so they went down and played. And after it was over, they came backstage and they said, we really wish we could have paid you. We don't have the money. But one of our young painters has agreed to give you each a painting of his. So this young slender man, blonde hair, comes up and hands them each a drawing. Turns out to be de Kooning, Wilhelm de Kooning, who's one of the great, great painters today. Turned out to be the largest fee the quartet ever got. When you consider the value of my, we still have that painting hanging in my parents' house. You know, so there is a case of, of not looking for the money, but ending up very well off. That's, that's, that's incredible. Yeah. He ended up, well, I, I could talk forever. Uh, the book is, the book is called a passionate journey. It's a memoir. It's your father's fantastic memoir available everywhere. Nicholas. Yes. Uh, well, Amazon for sure. And uh, mostly online and harder to find in the bookstores. I will link to it in our show notes page at stackybenjamins.com, by the way, so everyone knows where to look. I obviously, having you on the line with us, uh, you also have a storied career. Uh, what's what's coming up next for you and uh, in your work? Well, I, I just finished uh, the summer festivals that I go to, and I, I teach. I'm chair of the string department at the Manhattan School of Music, so gearing up for the, the coming season. And I'm also uh, president of the Na Walter Naumberg Foundation, which helps young artists. So we're planning some competitions, one for a vocal competition and some concerts. So busy schedule ahead. I was going to say, I wish you had something going on, Nicholas. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule, though, to talk about your father and his career. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm so glad you gave me the chance. Thank you. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And wasn't Nicholas Mann great? Well, let's stick with this theme of the arts and move from music to fiction, because today is J.K. Rowling's birthday. While she's bathing in money, I'll let you share in the bathing by bathing in this trivia question. Rowling is the world's first author to reach and then lose what financial high-water mark. I'll be back with your answer right after this. Listening to podcasts about starting a small business are always frustrating because the big thing that you see over and over and over is businesses, even if they have great cash flow, have difficulty, OG, getting funding. And I can't understand why a bank won't support a company that's making all the right moves, clearly growing quickly, but then they want all of these um, blood samples. No, I'm kidding. But, you know, they want all kinds of stuff from the company. 
to the point that it makes getting funding very difficult. Well, big thanks to ClearBank for supporting Stacking Benjamins. ClearBank changing the way entrepreneurs raise money with equity-free capital. How's that? There's something right there that a lot of entrepreneurs are looking for. If you're looking for a better way to fund your business, ClearBank provides entrepreneurs capital to grow. They believe that founders shouldn't have to give up a piece of their company to fund marketing and inventory expenses. They make equity-free investments from $10,000 to $10 million and can get you a term sheet in less than 20 minutes. Here's how it works. You apply in minutes by entering your basic business info and linking your marketing and revenue data. You choose what your desired marketing budget is going to be from multiple options that they provide. Then you watch revenue grow as you acquire more customers with your new marketing budget. ClearBank will also offer you more capital as you grow. They charge a small flat fee for the capital and you pay them back. So it's a win-win rev share. This is not a loan. There isn't an interest rate. There's no fixed maturation date, no personal guarantees, no credit checks, no equity, and no board seats required. In 2018, ClearBank invested over $150 million. This year, they're on track to invest, by the way, OG, over a billion dollars. And they have relationships with marketing agencies, e-commerce professionals, venture capitalists, accountants, and more, which will give you a true advantage in the market. We always say it makes sense to know who your partners are. Remember we had Sean Patel on? Just recently here, having the right partners makes all the difference. So if you're doing over 10000 a month in revenue, find out how you can receive ClearBank capital by getting your 20-minute term sheet at ClearBank. That's ClearBank with a C, C-L-E-A-R-B-A-N-C.com forward slash S-B. Bank, spelled with a C at the end. That's C-L-E-A-R-B-A-N-C.com slash S-B. Stop pitching. Get back to doing what you love, growing your business. Welcome back, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and welcome back to the most creative part of this podcast, my trivia. You know, I was going to write a series about a kid named Harry Popper who magically used dollar bills to fight a evil dude named Inflation Morton. Then this rolling character goes and steals my idea. <laughs> no hard feelings, JK, because I have this podcast trivia gig I can fall back on. I'm not sure what you have, but I'm sure you'll you'll land on your feet. Speaking of, here was today's question. J.K. Rowling was the first author to reach and then lose what financial high water mark? The answer? If you said billionaire, you'd be correct. She's the first author to lose her billionaire status. But let me stop you before you start thinking she's blowing her money on yachts and jets. Rowling actually lost her billionaire status from giving away money to charity. Isn't that nice? Someday when I make my millions, I'll blow my money on hair care products and the shrimp appetizer at the Sizzler, worth every penny, and I'll invite both of you to join me. That's charitable, isn't it? Kind of the same thing. See ya! You got it. guess there's uh, worse ways to, quote, lose a billion. Yeah, very, very nice of her. Uh, big thanks to Nicholas Mann for taking time out to talk to us. I just think it's amazing, OG, when somebody can live their life in a way that they get to do what they love to do and life kind of takes care of itself. That's the plan, isn't it? That like, I, like I, just do what you want to do. It's way better than retiring early. But definitely retiring early is a great second, but it's not about retiring early. It's about what you're doing next. 
I find that's the biggest issue is that people have this kind of singular goal of, you know, I want to be fired, right? I want to be retired so I don't have to think about this anymore. I don't want to work in my cubicle anymore. But you can't do that when you're 40 or 35 or 51. You know, you have to have something to do. And what you're really saying, like, if you ask yourself a better question, like, what would I do if money wasn't an issue? That starts to create the, okay, well, here's what I should be doing. And you get to the point where you can create an income stream or you can create an investment plan or or passive income or whatever that produces a little bit of money. Then you can go do the thing that you really want to do, even if it doesn't even pay as much as the other thing that you were doing. So ask yourself a better question, I think. Have you ever read, I'm not going to be able to pronounce his last name, but the philosopher at the University of Chicago, uh, Michael starts with a C, then goes Z. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Flow. Flow. Yes. Shazitsky's. Yes. Samahani. Yeah. Yeah. He talks about people, especially people in classical music, where there's never going to be a ton of fame, right? I mean, Robert Mann, one of the most famous people in that arena, and I'll bet 90% of our audience doesn't know who Robert Mann is, sadly. Well, they do today. But they practice and practice and practice and practice just because of the love of what they do. And as I was reading that philosophy, I was struck by how those were the best times of my life. When I was in that state that he talks about, where I'm working on something and I'm absolutely loving it, just just phenomenal times. It's like that, uh, did you ever read the book uh, Mastery by George Leonard? No, but I heard of it, man. I'm little, a, little teeny tiny yeah. book, it's about literally a small book. You know, but uh, Mastery by George Leonard. I'm glad you brought that up. up there somewhere. There was a piece that Nicholas and I didn't have time to talk about that I want to bring up here. This is, by the way, from his time. He was at Michigan State University for four years. And when he was there, he wrote this piece called Development and Technique. And I want to read this briefly because this is this is fascinating for any career. What happens in the beginning when we're learning to make music, we become kind of primitive computers programmed to do certain things. In the beginning, you have to be programmed. Put your finger down there. Put your finger down there. That's programming. The fascists and authoritarians get their roads built and their trains run on time. Everything's programmed. This reaches to a very deep point. Today, you have more instrumentalists playing more perfectly all over the world. It's just incredible. I can name 200 violinists who can play every concerto perfectly right now. I can name them, their first names even. The point is that out of those 200, there are maybe three and a half who can say something or make me feel personalized about it. They're all programmed. There's no supreme way of doing something. You yourself change over the years. If you're that inflexible, you're going to die a rot. You have to be flexible. That's what growth is about. I remember listening to one of the partners of one of the chefs who were on Chef's Table, and he was talking about, listen, at the top level of being a chef, everybody's programmed. Everybody knows, OG, how to make great meals. They all know it. That's like the entry ticket. It's At this point now, it's about expression. And out of the top 200, he says there's maybe three and a half who can do that. That's mastery. But you got to be programmed first. That's the first thing. Yep. Got to know what you do before you can start fiddling with it. Yeah, it's uh, but everybody wants true to get for everything. Yeah, everybody wants to get right to the mastery. Let's let's skip yeah. all that and get right to the. No, you got to know the yeah. basics first. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency. 
they put what you value first on a Wednesday in late July air conditioning <laughs> that compressor blow up the other day just just stopped working like it's just blowing hot air oh yeah your compressor blew up like I don't know what that is but can you fix it oh yeah we can fix it oh yeah we the meter's running dude it's we can fix it. Going to be fun fixing so that. I'm going to say an ice bath and uh, AC. <laughs> it's your loved ones and your time, but they're usually more fun when you've had your ice bath and your AC. That's right. It's why they may be buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now for a free quote. Their application's simple. It's online. You get an instant coverage decision. Like, Bam. You will get something Instant. right now. And today, we're going to throw out the lifeline to our friend Ryan. Say hi, Ryan. Hi, Joe and OG. This is Ryan here from my own basement in the lovely state of Utah. I started my own business, came across a, a strange piece of magic, actually not magic, uh, investment account called a self-directed IRA. I would like to use it but other people are telling me to look at a, a SEP 401k or IRA, but I pretty much prefer to do a self-directed. I have the ability to maximize the self-directed for, for 2018, and I'm looking to make my own investments in different alternatives. So was wondering what your thoughts were. Pretty much love the show. You guys are, are great, even though sometimes it does get dull and not exciting when I'm working out, but Doug picks it up with his <laughs> his lovely trivia that when I'm benching 300, get get stumped on quite a bit. Um, keep up the good work, and I'll look forward to your response. Bye. If Ryan's if Ryan's thing is not a podcast of his own, he needs one. No kidding. A bit of magic. Self-directed IRAs, huh? Yeah, I'm going to give him uh, one thing, which is because we're about to dig into self-directed IRAs and uh, probably not in a pretty way, but I will tell you that if you're going to do a self-directed IRA, there was a Friday FinTech segment with uh, the founder of a company called Alto, A-L-T-O, that's been working in that area. And the reason why I want you to go listen to that, that this is from, uh, it's that was a March 22nd episode of this year is because the alternative investment game and using alternative investments is just a minefield. And uh, man, OG, you can't really tell somebody to do these without just a ton of research because it doesn't make sense. And even then, I'm not sure that we'd, we'd recommend it. Oh, it's just, this is the whole thing where people are trying to do steps 10, 11, 12, without doing steps one through nine, you know, it's, it's, well, I want to put, you know, my IRA inside of an apartment building so that just stop. No, like, no, no. Do, the other way around. I want to put my apartment building inside of an IRA. Well, yeah, whatever. I, you know, just <laughs> it's, it's rife with problems. And now there's companies out there who will just tell you, Hey, we've got this handled. You don't have to worry about it. We're going to take care of it for you. And uh, you don't have anything to worry. But the the, the, mis the problem with the mistakes is that it's so obnoxiously profound. If you make a mistake or if something goes wrong, 
it's catastrophic. I just can't figure out why this makes sense for anybody. When there's so many investments that are tailored for IRA consumption, I think trying to thread the needle on these other investment assets, it's incredibly difficult. And even though, you know, when we talk to Alto, they are fantastic at knowing I's to dot and T's to cross. Oh, gee, it's even if you get that piece right, there's there's so many things. I mean, our friend Derek Merkler, who is a financial advisor, he's been on the roundtable. You and I have seen what he and his family do. They invest in racehorses just as right. a, it's what his family does. But imagining trying to put that racehorse operation inside of your IRA. You can't touch it. You have to have an outside manager. You can't go near the race. There are so many just little tiny rules that you have to follow for those that, uh, that man, is it difficult. And one tiny mistake blows the whole thing up. And even if you didn't make a mistake, trying to defend the fact that you didn't make a mistake can also cost thousands of dollars in IRS costs and attorney fees and, you know, all that sort of stuff just to say, no, I didn't do anything wrong. And all of that just erases the whole thing. So, you know, I see this where people say, I want to buy an apartment building and I want to put it in my IRA because that's where the money is. Just wait a little while or buy a REIT or buy a non-traded REIT in the area or industry that you think that you want to buy real estate in. If you're so passionate about, you know, apartment complexes on ski slopes, there's probably a non-traded REIT somewhere that has an apartment, a collection of apartment complexes on ski slopes that you can put money in or private placement or something like that. So, I mean, there's other ways to accomplish the same thing, but when you kind of take your, take a step back and you ask a different question, what are you trying to do? A lot of times what we're trying to do is make up for lost time and you get seduced with the idea of, well, I can go make 20% in this. I don't know. It just, there's a, there's too much risk there. It's just, and that's what scares me is Ryan's hilariously awesome phone call to the Haven lifeline. OG was when he, when he called it magic, there's this magical thing. It's not magic. It's not magic for a lot of people. It is fool's gold, man. You you want to stay away from that. There's a lot of nightmares. There are a subset of a subset of a subset of a subset of people that have done that correctly, and they will tell you that it's magic. Oh, it's the greatest thing in the world. That yeah. it's absolutely phenomenal. And the bad news is, I know that even me saying that right now is going to make some people go, well, the rules don't apply to me. I'm smarter than that. I can make it happen. Yeah. Why? Yeah, it- Again, if you really peel away the onion, I bet you that probably 95%, 99% of people are seduced by some advertisement somewhere that has a, a high rate of return attached to it or the fact that, hey, you know, I've got 200 grand in my IRA and I haven't accumulated any money in a cash reserve or in a in, you know, non-IRA position, but I feel like the world is passing me by. If I don't get in this insert thing here quite often it's real estate and kind of take apart the layers here and you just go, hold on a second. What are we really trying to do? We're trying to get financially independent. We're trying to accumulate money for a purpose down the line. That's fantastic. There's a thousand ways to do that that are probably safer and less risky from a, from a tax perspective or blown it up in your face perspective than doing this quote unquote self-directed IRA bull crap. After all of that though, if you're still going to look into it, listen to my discussion with Eric. Don't Sats. say I didn't warn you. 
Yeah, because Eric Satz at Alto even does not, it's what they do, and he does not make it sound sexy or wonderful. He lays the table very well for that type of an investment. That's our March 22nd episode from this year, and the title is Lessons from the Tooth Fairy, which uh, (laughs) seems appropriate for the discussion that we just had. Uh, That's actually a good children in investing episode uh, around that Friday FinTech segment. We also are finishing up with our letters here, and uh, this one comes to us from Leo. Leo wrote, with the FAFSA, including 529 plans and the financial eligibility of students, would it be a good idea to not contribute to the plan? So don't save for college because the thing that you might get for free from college might make it so you don't get as much stuff for free? Um, I am I'm very confused. I mean, I'm yeah, on one end, you get the you get the you get all the tax advantages of the 529. It's in a separate pot. But the fact that the FAFSA is included, does the FAFSA, FAFSA now include 529 money? Always has. Oh, yeah. 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 It's, it's, you're looking at me like you like I have Maybe. three heads trying to solve it. it just, well, I, well, and I'm I mean, just, I get it. Like if, you, if, if you've got an opportunity, I mean, I'll just kind of spin this a different way. If you have an opportunity to have a significant amount of college or secondary school paid for because of the fact that your income is at a lower rate or whatever the case may be, then I think you should take advantage of it. That's what it's there for, you know, but if you're of reasonable uh, savings or reasonable means and you're going, well, if I put money in a 529, then I'll actually have to pay for college on my own versus hoping that in 18 years from now, somebody takes care of it for me for my, you know, for my newborn child. Yeah. I like the idea of kind of taking ownership of that a little bit better. You know, tomorrow's not promised to anybody. We don't have any idea what college costs or anything is going to look like in the future. So, you know, playing that game is a little rough to try to figure out if you're, you've got a high school junior and you're going, how do I pay for college where, you know, we don't make a ton of money. We haven't saved a ton of money. Should I put the little bit that I have maybe in a 529? Right. Well, no, probably then you go, no, I got to, you know, you got to take care of you first. We talk about, it's really important to make sure that your financial independence is squared away before you start worrying about your kids stuff. You know, I can tell you countless times of people where I've talked to and they're like 50, 55, 60, 65 going, Hey, my kids are squared away. I don't have anything for retirement. What do I do? And you go, you should have thought about that 30 years ago. You know, so if you're in that situation where you're kind of staring down the barrel of college and you're going, oh, crap, I'm not on track for retirement. Hey, listen, junior, (laughs) you know, it's time to figure it out. Like, let me show you. There's a big book. When I was in when I was going to college, Joe, when you were going to college, too, was probably on like stone tablets back then. But you know, when I went, it was actual like Dude, printed paper. Knock it off. Um, there was like a big book of like scholarship opportunities, right? Yeah. You like went to the library. It was this huge book. The Peterson's, like literally, the Peterson's Guide to Colleges. My, I don't know, whatever it was called. But my my job the summer of my junior year, in addition to my other job, was to like thumb through that and find all of the things that I could apply for. And you look at it and sometimes, you know, when you're a kid or when you're a parent, sometimes you look at that and say... Ah, it's 250 bucks for the VA or $500 for the American Legion. That's really not a lot. And yeah, taken by itself, it's not. 500 bucks probably pays for a textbook and a half at a, at, a, at a big school. But when you put all those things together, 
you know, if you got five or $6,000 a year of renewable scholarships because you wrote really good essays of, you know, what does the flag mean to me? You know, that's a good ROI that I would spend a lot of time on versus, you know, going, well, I've got 200 bucks a month that I can score away for college. Today's not the day to do that. Today's the day to like, make sure your financial independence is, is taken care of and use other alternatives like the FAFSA, like, you know, other grant programs to take care of school. Yeah. We don't know what, what any of that's going to be like if juniors two, three years old, I mean, the whole program could no, be I mean, I mean, I've got a three-year-old and we're looking at college and we're saving some money, obviously, in a 529, but we're looking at it from the perspective of if we can pay off our mortgage, I've got 15 years before she goes to school or before she goes to college. Well, then I've got the cash flow to help offset the actual college tuition payments, you know, whatever that may be at the time, you know, and obviously tuition and ta- or I'm sorry, taxes and real estate insurance and all that sort of stuff. It's, you know, who knows what that's going to look like, but there's a balancing act and everybody's a little bit different on how that works out. Now for my 12 year old who's in seventh grade this year, I don't think I can get the house paid off in six years, you know? So he's, we've got a 529 for him and we've been saving from day one, but, but for my daughter, we got to think a little differently. Sure. Thanks for the question, Leo. You got a question. The a mailbag is close. So you want to leave a message on the Haven lifeline like Ryan did. Ryan brought it with that one, by the way. Nice job, Ryan. Great job. I think the stacker world now knows what a great call the Haven lifeline sounds like. Good work. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail and you could have OG and I answer your question. That's going to do it for today. Man, what an episode. What a great week so far. We got another great one on Friday for you, though. So we'll see you back here in two days. By the way, OG and his team are taking on clients. So if you're looking for good financial planning help in your corner, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash OG. You'll find out there how they can interface with you for better financial planning. All right, that's going to do it. Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Sorry, Joe. What was that? My uh, my beret was covering my ears. I couldn't hear you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what we learned. What we learned. Okay, sure. Hey, first, take some advice from the life of Robert Mann. Following every passion has a trade-off, but doing what you want to do your whole life and making enough money to get by, count us in. Money is a tool for a life well-lived, and it's about that music, not the dollars that helped you get there. Second, Passwords, smash words. You went for the free thing and your passwords were compromised on Robinhood. It's not a stretch. While that phrase, you get what you pay for, isn't always correct, getting passwords taken on a free trading site, not a stretch. But the big lesson? If you're interested in ZZ Top and Metallica, Joe's mom's kitchen is the place to be. But today... She's playing classical in honor of Nicholas Mann being here. That woman has range. Props to you, lady. Special thanks to Nicholas Mann for joining us. You'll find Robert Mann's memoir, A Passionate Journey, wherever books are sold. Thanks also to J.K. Rowling for those Harry Potter books, although Inflation Mort would have been a much better villain in my opinion. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and if you could only know what it really smells like down here. 
SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Thanks also to Joe's mom's favorite waiter, Ethan, for holding a table for us at the Sizzler today. We know Wednesday is a madhouse over there, but we're coming, Ethan. We're coming. So we just took my nephew to a regional theme park that we've talked about a fair a regional theme park. We've talked about a fair amount here on the show called Cedar Point. I haven't been to Cedar Point in four years. Last time I went there, I was running a half marathon. I haven't, I haven't been there in twenty years. It is so clean and pretty nice. We had a very fun day. Actually, fun two days. We did the water park the first day. And then the second day we did the theme park and there are so many discounts for these regional theme parks. Oh gee, that we went for a fraction of the price by knowing that we were going to go back in February and getting the winter discount tickets where they're just trying to get some locked in money, uh, getting those that old guy were, discount. It, it, it was fantastic. The gray hair discount. The, I didn't, I didn't get the gray hair discount. Sadly, they don't care what age you are at Cedar Point. It's how tall you are. They just want to know what you're going to ride. And that was it. But had a fantastic time there. I will say two things. Number one is I called them to ask about getting a gift card for my sister because she's the one who really wanted to go. She's like, I haven't been in forever. I'd really like to go. Great. Uh, So we get her this gift card and it was so frustrating because it turned out she couldn't use the gift card we got her to get into the park. What do you use it for? You can only use it for like food and trash and trinkets inside the park. So we bought her mm. this fairly decent sized gift card, hoping that she'd be able to use it for her admission. She's like, I can't, I can't eat anymore. Elephant ears, Joe. God bless America. There's so many Coney dogs. To that point, there's so many upsales at this place. Number one, you told me about this the second you heard we were going. You're like, oh, they have this thing called Fast Lane, right? Their version of the Fast Pass. It's an extra bag of money so that you don't have to stand in oh, line. It's a ton of money, isn't it? It was stupid money. I just, I looked at the amount of money you were going to have to pay for that. I'm like, that cost on top of the cost I paid would have made it 3X, mm-hmm. three times as much. To not stand in line. Now, I get it. The experience of not standing in line, you know, just getting through the rides. I didn't feel like really we were that long most of the day. So, 
not that worried about that. And then the second thing was they had these wristbands. It was funny. For 15 bucks, you get a wristband, drink as many sugary sodas as you want. It's a deal they have with Coca-Cola. Drink as many sodas. How many Cokes can you have in a day these days? I mean, you're not a big soda drinker, I don't think. Well, I'll tell you what happened. We, I know the answer. Like I became a soda drinker. I do know the answer to that because we're walking along through the park and this woman flags us down. And I, I was very skeptical. She's like, excuse me, excuse me. And I'm like, I don't want to talk to somebody. I don't know. I don't know what the hell this is about. And she's, and, and, and she goes, do you guys have either the, the dining or the beverage plan? I'm like, uh, no, we don't have either one of those. And she's like, here, I didn't know they came with our tickets and we bought these extra ones. So congratulations. Here's four. You know, I did that actually in, uh, at Epcot one time. Remember the paper fast passes? Yes. We had a ton of them for uh, like the Nemo ride at Epcot and everybody had left and nobody wanted to go anymore. We were doing the tour around the world. <laughs> keep it PG. Oh, we're in the after show. Me and my father-in-law were just getting crunk, yo. <laughs> And we were walking You're out, drinking at every one of the. Oh god! Every one of warm the, uh, sake is like the worst thing imaginable, especially when it's on like drink number seventy-two. But anyways, which side did you start these... on? By the way, did you start in Canada or did you start in Mexico and work your way around? Oh, Canada! Oh boy. yes, yeah. We had the uh, you did the, England, you know, the Irish the thirty-two pub, percent the... beer in Canada. Then we had the beer tasting in England, and then uh, France. I think I, after that, I'm like, yeah, blacked out. Um, I'm going to go France. Then there's Italy, Morocco, Japan, Germany. The U, you got the U.S. pavilion in there? Somewhere. Yeah. I mean, it was basically beer, 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 wine, wine, please God, some water. Like what country <laughs> exports water? It seemed, it seemed like a good idea at the time at first. but Well, then it started raining. So we got kind of trapped inside. We're like, well, we're here now. Anyway, so as we were leaving, I had these fast passes in my pocket for, for uh, Nemo. And yeah, you're trying to like, excuse me, excuse me. People are like, uh, go away from me, crazy yes. drunk person. Yeah. You're like, no, no, I got to, you know, like here. They're like, oh, what are these? They're like, I don't, I'm good. I'm good. I don't want any. You're like, no, no, fast passes to Nemo. They start like 20 minutes. Go get you some. <gasps> thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know. So, yes. Feeling. I, I got to Anyway, use, so how much Coke did you drink? Uh, six. Or Dr. Pepper. Six glasses. That's way too much. Yeah. I didn't feel good the uh, entire day. I didn't imagine. You know, at Costco, you can get the Cokes, like the original Cokes now. Oh, the really you know, like sugar, like yeah. the sugar Cokes. Yes. And uh, I've been meaning to pick up a couple bottles of those, but I run out of room in my cart when I go to Costco by the time I get to the Coke section. <laughs> you, you can't get the mandatory 64 pack of Coke. Oh, sir. Did you want a Coke? Yeah. I'll just take like kind of like one of those and maybe two Dr. Peppers. Like, so you want 642 cases of Coke. Okay. Yeah. We can take that. No, like, no, no. I want one, one bottle of Coca-Cola. Oh, no, you have to. Yeah, we don't do those. You have to buy a pallet, sir. I see you've taken up all the space in your cart with Mayomi Pinot. You're <laughs> like, well, it's $12 a bottle. So Cedar Point was fun. Excellent time. Fantastic I gotta, time. I got to go back. I think I'm going to try to go in the fall. My cousin really likes to go. It's, he's a big fan. I didn't even and know. I know it, it kind of dials back the attendance. You know, go like a Tuesday yeah. in October. Oh, There's fantastic. probably nobody there. I don't know that I love 
roller coasters, the rides or anything like that anymore. I just like being there. I don't know what it is. If it just feeds my ADD, just, you know, just people and excitement and fun. And maybe it's just reminiscing about the old days when I really love the roller coasters. Now I found that the roller coaster gets a little intense for, for Joe. And so yeah. about, th- I kind of, I kind of worry about that actually about three quarters of the way down the first hill. I close my eyes and they say, <laughs> they say it makes it worse. I'm like, eh, not when yeah. you feel like you're going to pass out. <laughs> well, one of the things that I learned, uh, so this other thing that I'm picking up, right. The flying thing, right. I'm trying to like learn how to fly. Yes. You were doing that while I was at Cedar point. We were, yes. we were simultaneously trading, was, trading, uh, yeah. videos of, well, one of the things that I, that, that my instructor told me is when you turn not to try to like force your head to be straight, you know, you got an instinct to do that. Like when you, like when you turn, you like try to straighten your head out. So it's still up and down, but you should just like turn, you know, turn your whole body with it Go with and it. just be, be okay with the fact that your head's tilted sideways, you know, because you're going in a circle or whatever it is. Cause it doesn't confuse you. Otherwise, like what happens is your, you know, your body's going in one direction, but your head's facing a different direction. Oh, there's some fancy name for it where it screws your psychosis up. <laughs> You're like, but I feel like I'm doing this, but my head says I'm doing that. And it just can kind of confuse you. So you're almost done with those lessons. Those are, those are expensive. No, everybody says, and I agree, your private pilot certificate is a license to continue learning which I will continue to do. Yeah. But it sure seems like you're having fun living vicariously through you. Yeah. I just need about another million dollars. So (laughs) this is expensive, man. Holy crow. (laughs) Do you know how much fuel is in an airplane? Oh my gosh. Well, it's like, it's it's like my buddy told me, and I know you quote this after I told you, it's a very expensive time machine. It is. um, It is. It's, it's the slipperiest thing imaginable. I heard this quote, luxury once experienced is required. And so when you go, oh, I just flew, you know, 500 miles in two hours, or I could drive that and it takes eight. You're like, no, I'll do the flight thing. Like, well, it's a million dollars. You're like, yeah, it's cool. I'll just, sure, I'll figure out a way to pay for it. (laughs) It's It's like like those, remember those uh, tickets you won at the charity auction last year where you took me to the game and we sat down in like the fourth row (laughs) right by home plate? (laughs) Remember when I called you and I'm like, "Hey, why why is there like why is there a charge on the cor- on the corporate card every 22 minutes for $26 in Arlington? What the hell is that about?" You're like, "Yeah, that was us getting beers until the 7th inning." <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's uh, right. I forgot we were at a ball game. I bl- I blacked out. I have no idea. <laughs> we but I had a friend in Michigan whose son that was his experience. This bank that was trying to do business with dad gave him seats that were just like those seats behind home plate, yeah. like oh, row yeah. four. And so the kid goes to his first game ever and sits in the fourth row. And then later on, yeah. when dad's paying, they go up where, you know, I always sit upper deck, left field, you know, four rows from the. Yeah, you need binos to figure out who's batting. <laughs> you got no idea. And, and his son Patrick is like, dad, these seats suck. These are. <laughs> terrible i kids, know kids ruined for life i i told you about my kid yeah same thing same same exact yeah. thing yeah so now you're ruined now you're completely i'm ruined i'll never drive any longer than an hour <laughs> as long as i live or i just won't go it's like well it's going to cost seven hundred and forty three thousand dollars to fly there <laughs> or we could drive it'll be three hours like nah we just won't go i guess i can't afford to go i guess i can't <laughs> afford to go 
Put me down as a maybe. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD, employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.